Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 27th, 2017, and this is episode 1940 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today. Guys, we're going to uh, have calls for the expert council, actually questions for the expert council today, because it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And here's what we're going to be talking about. We have a question on caffeine, the good, the bad, and the ugly for Gary Collins. We also have the life of a farmer in the depths of winter from Darby Simpson. We have the skinny on discount brokers coming to us from, who else would you expect, but John Pugliano. We have considerations with a high-mileage used diesel vehicle. Stephen Harris will be talking about that, and I'll throw in a little bit of my thoughts on it as well. Uh, setting up bees in the semi-tropics of central Florida. No, Nobody else could do that other than who? Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer. And dealing with crush injuries from old Doc Bones. And I have some questions on farming ducks for profit to bite back cleanup hitter at the end today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Phil W. Books. They publish fiction and nonfiction books with permaculture and anarchist themes. Phil's new releases can be found at philwbooks.com. Or check out the link on the TSP Business Directory. And, of course, there'll be a link in today's show notes for Phil W. Books. Uh, next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. Because the episode is 1940, the year we're looking at is 1940. And the whole world is literally heading for a hell. Um, Alex has really started to flesh these things out more. I can't read all of even the bullet points uh, and keep the intro a little shorter. So I'm going to recommend more than ever that you consider checking out tspwiki.com and checking out the, the year that was the episode yourself. I mean, I, I think what he's doing is chronicling something in a way that I don't think it's quite ever been done before. and It's really cool, and we really owe him a, a huge thank you for all the work he's done up till now chronicling century after century for us as we head up to the modern day. Here's what I have today for you from Alex. Francis Surrender and the Temptation of Vietnam. We have Faith, Hope, Charity, and the Zombie Apocalypse. And we have Trotsky Dies, rather messily. And if you read that one yourself, it's not the one I'm going to read today. You'll learn some about Vladimir Putin as well that I think a lot of people have forgotten. Uh, sometimes I speak well of Putin uh, in certain things that he's doing, or well of Russia, or, or recognize certain points they have that I think are valid. Don't think that means I trust Russia. I don't, and I don't think you should either. Uh, I have a whole bunch of bullet points on World War II in review. 
Uh, I have notable births. I have this year in film. I have this year in music. And I have in other news. Uh, let's take a look at some notable births this year. Uh, Jim Baker living, a glitzy televangelist convicted of fraud. Nancy Pelosi was born this year living, congresswoman and first woman speaker of the House. Various snide comments deleted. And in entertainment, Patrick Stewart is born this year. Of course, Captain Picard uh, also living. Chuck Norris living, martial arts expert, actor, and political conservative. I didn't realize Chuck was getting that old. Uh, Bruce Lee was born this year. Of course, passed away. John Lennon was born this year. And Ringo Starr living, drummer for the Beatles and Mr. Conductor in Thomas the Tank Engine. This year in film, we have The Great Dictator, quite ironic considering what's coming. Pinocchio and Fantasia are all created this year uh, of 1940. The year in music, we have uh, In the Mood by the Glenn Miller Band. I have I'll Never Smile Again by Tommy Dorsey Band. And When You Wish It Upon a Star from the animated film Pinocchio. And one of those, I won't tell you which, is the song of the day because it was the number one song of the year. All right, let's take a look at a couple things. I want to give you some of the bullet points uh, from World War II. Uh, a quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Winston Churchill is a new prime minister. The, USS, the SSR sends grain to Germany. The Belgians blow their bridges. German panzers break through the Maginot Line. Allied troops are pushed back to Dunkirk. And 340,000 troops begin evacuation. I'm going to stop there. Uh, if you want to read the rest of them, you can. But I want to make a little comment on that. I remember very clearly one of my really I had some I had some terrible teachers in high school that were just you know they were phoning it in. It seemed like the best teachers I had were science and history. Maybe that's because I like those. But we had a fantastic history teacher, and I remember when we covered this, he said very clearly, had Germany immediately attacked those three hundred forty thousand troops and not let them escape that they probably would have won the war in Europe before the United States ever got involved. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's always stuck with me. And he was a pretty smart guy. Let me read for you today Francis' surrender and the temptation of Vietnam, because this is going to ripple into something that's going to go on for a very long time and cost a lot of U.S. lives beyond World War II. It is a treasure lying in the street just waiting to be picked up. Foreign Minister Masuka, Mr. 50,000 Words, speaking to Japan's new cabinet members about Vietnam. Japan joins the Axis powers toward the end of this year, and one wonders why. They refused to join last year, but what has changed? It is Hitler's win over France. The Germans fool the French by feigning uh, toward, the, uh, toward Belgium and outflanking the forces holding the Maginot Line. The French have no defense in depth, so once the Germans are past the weak point in the line, the Allies are surrounded and must evacuate across the English Channel from Dunkirk. The French are forced to surrender at the same spot that Germany suffered its humiliating defeat after World War I. Now France is the loser and the German people cheer. Even if a German citizen secretly opposes Hitler, it is a relief to get back some of their own. So now Hitler installs the Vichy French government and uses the French ports to launch his U-boat attacks on British shipping. Which brings us back to the Japanese. Remember all those years ago when France invaded Vietnam? Vietnam is rich in resources and food. Its ports and runways make it strategically desirable as a means for Japan to attack China. By joining the Axis powers, Japan can convince the Vichy government to hand over the Vietnam to them. It is ripe, low-hanging fruit, so to speak. My take by Alex Rugg, it was ripe all right. This is one of those cases where a little more thought and a lot less enthusiasm was called for. Sure, Japan could have used Vietnam 
and it fit with their own overall strategy. But to become the ruling power in the region, many Japanese leaders realized that doing so would put them in conflict with the United States and other Anglo powers. Needless, nevertheless, it was too tempting, and the new government was only four days old. The fast-talking Mr. 50,000 words that the foreign minister was called behind his back convinced them to change their policy. Several members of the government resigned. One man should shed tears. The word inscrutable is often used to apply the Japanese at this time. Usually public tears were not on the agenda. He must have had some idea of what was coming for the land he loved, but no one could have imagined two atomic bombs, which, of course, is how that will all end. Um, I think Japan would have ended up at war with the U.S. anyway, but possibly differently had it not been for this. But what begins here, or actually what is in transition here, eventually will be uh, French influence in Vietnam transferring to uh, U.S. influence in Vietnam. And we all know where that goes in 58,000 lives later, long after World War II is over, and we thought once again that the world would be at peace. We'll see that as we move through the future. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Okay, guys, and I want to remind you again that uh, before we get into uh, the expert counsel today, that The TSP Spring Workshop, those tickets are going to go on sale um, at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, Monday. They will be on sale for MSB members first. I don't think that anybody else will get a shot at them. I really don't. This is going to be one of the, again, I, I, like I thought last time when we did this kind of multi-instructor approach, it was like the coolest one ever. I'm thinking this one might even be better. I mean, we've got some really cool stuff we'll be covering. I'll put it, what'll happen is at 9 a.m. on Monday morning, central time, not Eastern time, not Pacific time, my time, 9 a.m. central, adjust accordingly, a post will go out. It will remind you about all the cool stuff that's going on and it will say, If you'd like to sign up, log into your MSB account. You will go log in there, and there will be a link at the top. There will be a, a, a big headline. You won't have to go anywhere except as soon as you log in, the page you land on, a big red headline and a link, and you click that link. And when you click that link, it will take you to a hidden sign-up page to sign up because I always let MSB go first. Last time, it sold out in about two hours. So that meant anybody that really wanted to come could But if you waited till lunchtime, you didn't. So think about that. I would also suggest this. I'm an MSB member. I'll just lo log in this weekend and make sure there's nothing wrong with your account. And if there is, get in touch with me so I can help you. Because my dog ate my sign-up form will not be an acceptable excuse once these spots have sold out. 
Another reminder, there's an add-on workshop here. has nothing to do with me. You make an arrangement with Patrick Rorman to make a custom MT Knives knife with him in the uh, the two hours of, of break time each day that we have. Uh, it's it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, I kind of want to do it, but I don't have time uh, to do that myself during one of these things. And uh, But I'd be all in on it if it wasn't. I think there's only 10 of those available. I'll have a... Uh, Uh, a post going out this evening uh, with uh, with highlights on that workshop so that you can consider if you want to add that to what you're doing. Again, those arrangements will be made with Patrick, not me, not me, not Jack. I don't touch that. I have nothing to do with it. It's not an add-on for me. It's something Patrick came up with, and I said, sure, you can do that while you're here. All right, so I have a question now uh, for Gary Collins, and, and this is actually one that's, that's pretty important, I think, for people to think about. And it's about cutting down on caffeine. Um, I myself think that I am in a much better state because I have cut caffeine. I'm not caffeine-free, uh, but I've switched from coffee, which I was flat-out addicted to, uh, to teas for my mornings. And I use a little green tea in most of my tea blends, so there's still some caffeine there, but it's, it's far less. I was drinking two to three pots of coffee, I think, a day. Uh, it's strong coffee. Now, I think one or two cups is fine. Uh, but this this person has a, a question about it, and it, it also in relating to energy drinks, which I'm not a huge fan of. And uh, so we have that question for Gary. So Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, answering all your questions relating to primal, paleo, health, wellness, uh, you know, exercise, living off the grid, simplified living. So uh, we have another great question today, one I get quite often, as, as some of these I do. Caffeine is always a big topic with my clients and people who follow me. And John was wondering, as Jack and me have discussed, uh, the dangers uh, of caffeine and trying to reduce your consumption or eliminate it. You know, he, I think he, uh, he was hinting at that he may have been consuming sports drinks or energy drinks. And energy drinks and, and coffee are usually two different animals. Uh, a lot of the energy drinks today are just chock full of artificial ingredients, a lot of sugar, um, synthetic vitamins. So they're pretty crappy, most of them. But I have found a very good one that I've used over probably the last three years, if I remember right. Um, it's called Highball. Um, I think it's H-I-B-A-L-L-L. -L -L If, uh, and it's, it's zero calories, very few ingredients, pretty straightforward. The downside is it really just doesn't taste like much. It's pretty bland. Um, not, you know, but I've, like I said, I've used them for quite a while. Um, and then, you know, with that, you know, you just have to be careful with caffeine. I don't say you, you have to eliminate it completely. It's, it's a good tool to use when you need a pick-me-up. I use it for working out when I'm having a rough, tired day. Um, I, I consume coffee black, just like John, but I, I choose to drink organic coffee because uh, coffee and tea are the most heavily pesticide and herbicide spread crops in the world. So you have to be really careful with it. Not that organic is perfect, but it's just it's a better choice. And far as if you have issues sleeping, now that's where I say eliminate caffeine because it's going to make your problem worse. And also that I would, I always recommend stop consuming caffeine around noon or one. The, the half-life of caffeine in your bloodstream is still around nine hours. So you have to be really careful with it. It stays in your bloodstream for a long time. 
and, and, and that's what I mean. Anyone who has trouble sleeping, it is a killer for them. So with that, that little piece of advice to throw in there, but also as another alternative for John is green tea. It has about a third to half the caffeine of a normal cup of coffee. So there are some alternatives, um, but like I said, uh, when I go on long trips, I drink a big cup of coffee. I, I don't want to fall asleep at the wheel. Um, I'm getting older, harder to stay awake. So there's nothing wrong with that, John, but I hope that gives you a couple alternatives. And also, guys, I am in the MSB membership uh, site. I am a member there, so make sure you get 10% off any items at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks again. All right, next up I have a question for uh, Darby Simpson here. And basically, you know, when you're a full-time farmer, and, and Darby's the kind of farmer that you kind of think of more like a rancher, right, except he uses small, does a lot of smaller animals like, like chickens and turkeys and stuff. He's not out plowing fields and planting corn is what I mean by that. And so a lot of the bulk of his work is in from brooding animals up until slaughter, and then, you know, they're they're gone. So that you would think that creates some downtime. Probably not as much as you'd think, though. Darby, what goes on in the depths of winter for a full-time farmer like yourself? Hello, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life podcast. Today I'm calling in to answer a question for Janet in Ohio. Janet was wanting to know what it's like for a farmer such as myself uh, in the depths of winter, um, particularly in January and February. She was wanting to know what we do to gear up for the upcoming season, how much actual downtime I get, and uh, also she had a question about the challenges of keeping our breeding stock happy when it's so cold outside. Uh, I tell you, Janet, we actually stay pretty daggone busy around here in January and February. Now, it's it's not being super busy with all of the physical labor uh, that we have during the summer, um, but we do stay really busy. Um, Really, in our minds, winter kind of starts uh, right after Thanksgiving. Once those turkeys go and the last load of pigs go, we get into December. And, and really, December is our biggest month of, of true downtime where we're just kind of doing the absolute minimal amount of work required to, uh, you know, keep the plate spinning in terms of, uh, you know, doing a single farmer's market every week. Uh, we drop down to, to one farmer's market starting in November. Uh, versus doing two uh, during the summer from May through October. Uh, and we really take a lot of time off. And, and then right at the end of the year, you know, we've got about two weeks there where we're basically, um, you know, we're not responding to emails. We're not answering the phone. We're not doing much of anything. It's, it's really true downtime just to chill out with our family and, and give thanks for a, a great season and uh, just have some time to reflect. Once January rolls around, things get pretty busy pretty fast. Actually, the first thing I start doing is I have a lot of winter planting that takes place, and uh, the first thing I hammer out is my chicken CSA. Um, I get all the details worked out with my butcher. My butchering dates are scheduled. Speak with my uh, my hatchery, which we use Schlecht Hatchery out in, in Iowa. We absolutely love them, and uh, get all everything scheduled. Uh, shoot out an email to our existing chicken CSA customers and uh, start getting our bulk spots filled up uh, where we're selling product at a discount. And then those those checks start coming in. That gives us some cash flow to, to start thinking about some other things. We do the same thing with our bulk beef. Um, you know, uh, email all of our existing bulk beef customers and, and see how many 
you know, steers uh, we're going to be selling in, in bulk for the upcoming year, get those slots all filled up. And, and then uh, sometime like in March, we'll do the same thing uh, with pork. We do bulk pork twice a year, uh, May, June timeframe, and then again in November. So, you know, we start getting all that ironed out, uh, get all those orders filled. Um, the, the bulk stuff, except for the, uh, the pigs in the fall, that's all taken care of basically – you know, by call it March one, um, that's that's all nailed down and and those spots are filled up and that gives us a bunch of money coming in. And what that allows me to do is then start looking at project planning. So I can tell you right now, I'm looking at we've got about um, oh roughly you know four thousand feet of eight wire exterior high tensile fence we're going to be building this spring. Uh, we've got a couple thousand feet of internal fencing. Uh, that we're going to be putting up. We're, we're getting ready to, to, to fence in about another 37 acres, 25 of that's wooded uh, for our cattle uh, so that we've got some extended grazing areas to use this summer. Uh, so, you know, I'm putting together cost estimates on what it's going to take to, you know, build all that fence, uh, reaching out to the contractor, getting materials lists uh, put together. Uh, you know, get, getting the contractor lined up is really key because he gets super busy. As soon as, as soon as it gets warm and the ground is soft, he is super busy. So I want to get him lined up. Um, and, and, you know, there's just a number of things like that that I, I'm really focused on this time of year, trying to get all that big picture stuff, you know, planned out, scheduled, uh, taken care of. We, we get all of our, our butchering dates uh, nailed down with our butcher uh, for pork and beef as well because I tell you what, those slots are filling up faster and faster as this local food movement just continues to, to gain traction and more people want it. Um, we actually had to go through even before the end of 2016 and schedule everything with our, our um, pork and beef butcher for all of 2017. Uh, just so we could get dates on the calendar. And frankly, I didn't get all the dates that I wanted. So, you know, things are, are happening and we're, we're thinking about a year in advance on a lot of this stuff. And, uh, this is a great time of year to do that. When it's cold outside, you get your body gets some physical rest, but I tell you, it's kind of mentally exhausting, uh, going through all this stuff, but it's a great time of year to do it. And, uh, just kind of helps us, you know, focus on the year as a whole, set some goals, get projects planned out. You know, big things scheduled, and then we can start filling in the the nitty gritty details as those things uh, get closer. Beyond that, on a weekly basis, uh, we, you know, we we've got a, a small delivery route we do, which is you know isn't a huge portion of our business. We kind of function stack that with some other weekly trips we have into town. Uh, and you know, like I said earlier, we've only got the one farmers market we do on Saturday. It's indoors. We're not packing as much gear. Um, in, in fact, all of our gear stays there. We just have to show up with our coolers on Saturday morning. Really love that market. Love the, the people of Growing Places Indy who, who run the Indy Winter Farmers Market. It's, it's just a blast to do. Um, you know, and, uh, my wife and I can kind of, you know, take turns doing that and give each other a rest. Um, you know, so that we're not, uh, not being gone every Saturday. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's good. That kind of gives us a break from the farmer's market, which is a grind too, you know? So we're busy, but I tell you, it's, it's a different kind of busy and it really does help us rest up more than it sounds like, more than it sounds like. Aside from that, uh, yeah, we've got a few animals that, uh, that we're, we're, you know, keeping through the winter with our, with our cattle. We got about 20 head of cattle 
uh, that we're keeping through the winter right now. And, and, uh, we've got a, finally got a shelter built for them, uh, that they can, they can go into if they want, uh, to, to keep them happy while it's cold outside. We keep plenty of good hay in front of them. That's really important. And then they've got about a four acre, uh, semi open, uh, semi wooded area with a lot of, uh, Eastern red cedar trees that they can go in there as well if that's what they want to do. Uh, so they've got those evergreen trees to, uh, get a windbreak. And, and honestly, they, they stay pretty happy. We just keep an eye on them and, Watch to make sure we don't see anything like pneumonia or anything like that set in. But beyond that, uh, they're pretty easy to, to take care of. So that's kind of what our winter looks like right now, Janet. I, I hope you find that helpful. Um, want to mention to everybody that if you're interested uh, in uh, learning more about all this, this crazy pasture-based livestock farming stuff, there are several ways you can do that. Uh, in my website, DarbySimpson.com, there are several free blog articles out there. Uh, that you can you can read uh, if you're interested in doing a one-on-one consult. I do offer those, and if you're an MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on those. You can check out the details in the MSB area on the website of survivalpodcast.com. Um, and then uh, also, we'll be running a, a, a second go-around of what has been called the Farm Business Essentials Intensive Workshop. That is coming up March 2nd through the 4th. Uh, it's going to be held here in my hometown of Martinsville, Indiana. That's something that I am putting on with my good friend Diego Footer of Permaculture Voices and Creative Destruction. Uh, we ran this last November, had almost 30 students from all over the country, and even one from the country of Chile that, that flew in to attend our workshop. Went really well. Uh, it had people that couldn't make it and, and asked us to, to do it again, so we're doing it again. Uh, all of our VIP slots are sold out. Uh, the class is about halfway full, but we do still have some seats remaining, so I would encourage you to check that out, and you can do that at the permavo- permaculturevoices.com website, or you can just email me directly, and I'll get you the information if you got more questions about that. Please check it out. Everyone, hope you have a great weekend, and keep those questions coming. Take care. I think we could call that response the time off that isn't. Um, and it, it is. It, it, it's hard work being a farmer. Darby does so much more than we do here. But I can tell you that, and we don't do meat runs, right, very often. So that part of like that seasonality and that fluctuation, that kind of big drop off where you get a break and a breather in between, we, we don't really have that. What we get is a drop in egg production. There's just, and we'll, we'll save that for later because that's the final question of the day, but there's just less eggs to take care of, that doesn't really do me any good because I'm not the one that does that part, right? I do all of the outdoor taking care of the, the birds and myself. So, But, you know, people think, well, it's winter. Well, yeah, it's winter, and that's when stuff freezes, and that's when stuff gets cold, and it, it gets tougher in some situations. So farming is damn hard, but it's damn rewarding. That's, that's how I've always put it, even a small hobby farm. Uh, next up, I have a question for John Pugliano in picking out discount, uh, discount broker and doing self-management of your finances. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a question from Brian, and Brian is asking about what discount broker trading platform I would recommend to him for his Roth IRA account. Now, he has about $10,000 in his Roth, and he wants to start making some trades and investment decisions on his own. And Brian, I do think it is a good idea that you open up an account at one of the discount brokers. That's how I started managing my own money, you know, over 30 years ago now. I uh, had first opened up an account at Charles Schwab. That was in the early 1980s. They were the actual pioneers of discount brokers. They were the only game in town in those days. Back then, just to give you an idea of how things have changed, I think the trading transaction fee was $110. 
Yeah, it cost $110 to make one transaction. Today, most discount brokers are charging less than $10. That's an example how technology has continued to drive down prices and why we see a real tug of war in our economy between inflationary pressures because the government debases our currency and yet technology provides us products and services reducing a lot of the cost for the things we use every day. We're going to see that more and more as automation creeps into the economy, uh, but I digress. That's a topic for another day. Let's get back to Brian's question. What's a good discount broker trading platform? Well, Brian, there's a lot of them out there. All these discount brokers will be more than happy to talk to you on the phone, walk you through an online demo of their trading platform, and really provide you with a customer service that you need to get you up and running with your Roth IRA. Now, there are a lot of small companies out there that are startups that seem to be doing things that are really innovative, uh, you know, with all different types of trading apps, um, some of them giving away free trades or drastically reduced uh, stock transaction fees, things like that. Personally, I would avoid them only because when it comes to my life savings, I don't want to be on the bleeding edge of technology. And so even if I'm going to pay a, a few dollars more, or even if I'm not going to have the most innovative of technology, I would prefer to stay with one of these large, solid, very stable discount brokers. I would encourage you to look at the top three or four. So that's like Charles Schwab, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade. Over the years, when I was an individual investor, I tried a lot of the discount brokers. The ones I really liked the best ended up being Charles Schwab and E-Trade. E-Trade was always a little bit less expensive. The reason I kept an account open at Charles Schwab, though, was that they gave me really good customer service. I knew with Schwab, if I had a problem, I could always call an 800 number. I could talk to a live human being. In most cases, Charles Schwab has branch offices around all the major cities or metropolitan areas. I really liked that about Charles Schwab, and I was willing to pay a couple extra dollars for that service. You may find that where you live, there is a, a local E-Trade office or some other type of discount broker, and, and so that could be a consideration for you as well. I think what you're going to find with any of these discount brokers, though, is that technology has improved to the point where it's really commoditized. And with you as a, a beginning investor, someone that only has you know $10,000 or so, the types of trades and transactions that you're going to be making are, are going to be really well served by any of these major companies. Think back to what I said a minute ago. When I started trading stocks 30 years ago, I was paying like $110 as a transaction fee. This is before the days of personal computers. I had to enter my trades using a telephone with a push-button dial. And as primitive as that was, I was still able to make profitable trades. So from a big picture perspective, I think it has a lot more to do with your trading strategy than with the type of technology that you're using. Brian, thanks for your question. To learn more about my opinions on the stock market and general wealth building principles, please check out the Wealth Studying Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. There's there's not much for me to add to that, or, and there's certainly not much to disagree with. Personally, um, for the stuff that I do on my own, I use E-Trade. And I, I, I agree with John that, that Schwab's got better customer service. I'm not looking for a lot of it usually. Um, E-Trade is just so easy to use. It's so easy to use. It's so easy to, to, to manage, uh, what have you. It's, it, it, to me, it's a great platform. There are cheaper discount broker services than E-Trade, but I think that only matters if you're a super high-frequency trader, which I am not. So I, I, I actually agree with those two recommendations. It's probably the two best uh, to pick from. Uh, next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on diesel vehicles, specifically used diesel vehicles with a lot of mileage on the motor. 
Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question, and I'm going to be doing this one with Jack because he's got a lot more experience with the Volkswagen Golfs than I do, and most of my experience is in with the pickup trucks. But this question is from Seth. He asks us, what is the reasonable life expectancy of a diesel engine in an automobile? Well, Seth, if you run a good oil in it, like Mobile One synthetic, all synthetic oil, you can expect 500,000 to a million miles in life out of the diesel engine. However, just because the diesel engine is going to last that long doesn't mean the vehicle is going to last that long. Seth writes, I have been offered first kick at the can on a 2000 Volkswagen, Volkswagen Golf that has almost 260,000 miles on it. I would be buying it off a friend. Seth, never buy a vehicle from a friend or someone that you know. You always regret it. Who says it's collision free and always well maintained. I have no way to verify this. I will need to take it to a mechanic. Most definitely take it to a mechanic and pay him about one or two hundred dollars to go over everything. You want to know, have them check the fuel filter, have them check the fuel pump, have them check the uh, suspension, the brakes, the rotors, uh, the rust. Is it going through the floor pan? Is it going through the doors? How bad is it? You want it completely and thoroughly checked out you know, you want him to spend an hour or two on it doing this uh, before you purchase the vehicle. The purchase, the purchase price is right, but I want to make sure I'd be getting enough life out of the engine. Well, you're going to get life out of the engine, buddy. It's the rest of the vehicle. I know a recent episode that you mentioned, actually Jack mentioned, that a diesel truck should have the body rust out around the engine. The body is starting to rust on the Volkswagen Golf. Is it worth buying for $1,000, or should I take another offer? I had a 2001 Dodge Diesel that I bought from Dallas, Texas, and I bought it in 2004, and I paid fifteen grand for it, and I sold it in 2016 for $5,500. And it had 318,000 miles on it, and it was leaking a quart of oil every three days, which was going to cost over $1,000 to fix. So, did I get good life out of the vehicle? Yeah, I really did. But, I mean, I didn't mention that I probably spent ten or $12,000 over those 12 years in maintenance on the vehicle. The wheel bearings go, the rotors, the brakes, the suspension, the, you know, <laughs> uh, the uh, fuel lines got rusted out. And that was a $1,200 replacement. The brakes, the calipers... All of that need replacement on, on, and on a heavy duty diesel. Those are heavy duty parts and they're expensive. So it really adds up. Now what you really want to do is see what you didn't tell me is how many miles a day are you driving? What's the great advantage of a Volkswagen Golf diesel? And that is it gets great fuel economy. So 
you know, if you're driving, if you got a vehicle that works right now and you're only driving 10,000 miles a year, you're better off keeping your existing vehicle. If you're driving 30,000 miles a year or an hour a day and you want the better fuel economy associated with a diesel engine, then you need to do the calculation and say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to get my $1,000 back on this vehicle in a year and a half and it's worth me purchasing. So... Without really knowing how good of a vehicle you have right now and how many miles are you driving or going to drive with a diesel Golf, it's hard to get you an answer. But that's your number one criteria is, am I going to get my money back on the fuel economy on the Golf? I wouldn't be worried about driving, uh, buying a 16-year-old vehicle with 260,000 miles on it. I'd be more concerned about the rest of the vehicle that's six, this is 16, 17 years old now. And I don't know what state you're in and what your road, road salt condition is. But uh, there are a lot of things that come into factor in this. And like I said, the number one return on investment for you is going to be fuel economy. And I don't know, do you want it as a backup vehicle, a bug-out vehicle? I mean, diesel fuel stores very well for a very long time, especially if you put some PRI-D in it, which prevents any algae from growing in, in it. Uh, there's a lot of other things that go into the return on investment on a vehicle. And uh, both of my last diesel trucks, I just bought a 2014 Dodge Diesel Ram from Dallas, Texas in 2016 with 59,000 miles on it. And I plan on keeping this vehicle for another 10 years. And I just got done driving it to Michigan, and I got over 20 miles to the gallon on cruise control going down the turnpike at 75 miles an hour. It's got great economics on it associated with what I want to do. The question is, what do you want to do? The Volkswagen Golf diesels are also harder to get at the moment because of the damn recall crap that's going on. Volkswagen found a way to cheat the emissions test where the vehicle computer would go, oh, I'm going through an emissions test, and it would adjust the engine parameters so the vehicle would pass the engine test. It's a big stink. You can't buy a brand new or last two years Volkswagen Golf diesel because everyone's holding on to them, waiting for a settlement from Volkswagen. The dealers can't sell them. It's a real mess. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to Jack now. Jack has some absolutely great experience with the Volkswagen Golf, and I'm sure his wisdom will be beneficial to you. If you want to see everything I have done with Jack on preparedness, and it's a free treasure trove, please go visit Stephen1234.com and sign up for my newsletter to find out all the latest and greatest stuff that I'm doing. Thank you so much. Over to you, Jack. So... Let me kind of add to this, and, and Steve's right, I have a lot of Volkswagen experience, but I was a Jetta owner, not a Golf owner, but there's not a, a tremendous amount of difference there really uh, overall. So because of the recall that, that Steve mentioned, Volkswagen's trying to get as many new ones out the door as they can, and you can get a really highly equipped Golf or Jetta, either or, for around $25,000. 
Let me tell you how I feel about the Jetta diesel, uh, and and I would suggest because you might want to look more toward the Jetta unless you like the hatchback of the Golf. Uh, both of them, though, when it comes to a car that you can buy new for under thirty thousand dollars, those cars pretty much embarrass every other vehicle in their class in what they offer and what they give and what they do. And if I was married to the idea that I just wanted a diesel car, uh, you, you couldn't do much better than either one of those right now, and I would seriously consider the option of buying a new one. Because what you're looking at is a car that's like 18 years old, or 17 years old, something like that, with over 200,000 miles on it, and the guy's still driving it. And that means he probably did do the maintenance that he should have done. Translation, if you pick one of these up today, new, you too will probably still be driving it in 18 years, and you will know what maintenance has been done on it. Also on Steve's comments with diesels, get ready to hear these words whenever you go to a shop to get maintenance done beyond changing oil, okay? Well, our master diesel tech, okay, There'll be like one guy at most shops that's their master diesel tech, even if you go to a Volkswagen dealership where they have more diesel cars than most. Even if you go to a Ford dealership with your Ford diesel truck, our master diesel tech is not working today. Our master diesel tech will be in in an hour. Our master, you know what that's code for? You're going to pay more money. Now, in many instances, I'm a huge fan of diesels. I still drive a diesel truck today. Uh, the only reason I got rid of my Jetta is because when we decided that we were going to get the Toyota 4Runner on a lease, um, I said, well, let's see what they would give us for it. And the stupid money they were willing to give me for that vehicle was like, yeah, you could have it, because I, I could go buy one for, for less than you're willing to give me for it. So that made me give it up, and it had some issues. And the issues were things like the interior starting to wear out, um, Uh, and, you know, that, that vehicle had been in an accident, and there were some things about it that just made me think, you know, this is the time to take the cash out of it and go on. Uh, but they're great vehicles. But again, the, if there's anything negative I can say about diesels is the motor outlasts the vehicle, and work and maintenance and parts generally cost more. But I, that, see, that's why I think that this type of vehicle, these small compact passenger cars in a diesel are something that you want to look at buying either new or a few years old or coming off a lease. Now, that's the problem. Your, your choices pretty much now are old ones, brand new ones. The stuff in the middle is where all of this kind of situation is. And I want to bring something up very, very important. There's people that are thinking right now, I know what I'll do. Volkswagen is so trying to clean this up. They're giving people stupid money for a, a you know a, a diesel that's under this kind of recall thing, like stupid. Like people are going in and getting a brand new one and walking out the door, you know, for stupid cheap because they're getting a ridiculous amount of value out of their trade-in. Which makes buying them a little bit more difficult, but again, I priced one out, plenty of inventory here, 25 grand with an automatic transmission. With an automatic transmission. If you like a stick, fine, but if you don't, the, 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 the automatics, the six speed automatics in these vehicles is like butter. It is one of the most finely German engineered things ever created. It really is. 
Don't ma doesn't matter if they're made in Poland, I think, and the motors are made in freaking Mexico, but it's German engineering and German oversight, and it's fantastic. So you can upgrade to an automatic transmission. You get 44 miles to the gallon. Um, brand new vehicle covered by a warranty in that mid $25,000, you know, $25,000 price point. You want to go with an automatic, you drop that down about $23. I think you're paying about $1,100 for the transmission. A few other upgrades I put on the build your own. Um, they're not making a lot of deals on them right now because they're making deals with their own people. But this is the big bugaboo I wanted to warn you about. People are thinking what I'll do is I'll go buy one of these where the guy's waiting in line. I'll drive it. I don't care that they cheated on their emissions. I'll drive it until it's, it, it kind of comes up to its point of being able to be flipped over, and I'll get a new one, and I'll get an incredible value out of it because it's got to want to wait. Don't you do it. The way this works is since the announcement came out that this, this was going to happen, if you sell your vehicle, you take your money and go on about your life, the person that bought it is stuck with it. They will not honor this program for a vehicle, a used vehicle sold after the announcement. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And if you were going to do it, it saves your ass. Don't thank me. Thank Ed Wallace from the, the show Wheels, because uh, I hadn't been following this closely. I just happened to be in a vehicle recently where somebody had done that. Somebody had bought a used one, and they were all happy about it, and they're going to get their money from Volkswagen, and Ed's like, you're not getting nothing. Basically, go see if the guy will take it back. And then when he gets it, he can just kind of transfer it to you then, because the guy hadn't actually done the paperwork yet, just made the deal. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And never buy any vehicle ever, 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 never, ever, ever, never, ever, 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 ever without a pre-purchased inspection by an independent mechanic that does not give a flying shit if it's a used vehicle. You get that. I don't care if it's diesel. I don't care if it's a truck. And I'm going to suggest that Steve's probably also right about not buying vehicles from a friend. Your friend could be telling you the God's honest truth, and he's done everything he's supposed to do that vehicle. And six months into it, you're driving around, something major goes wrong with it, and you're into it for $2,500 or more to get it fixed. It will probably, it will, now I'm going to say it's definitely, it will probably damage your friendship, even though it shouldn't. And it's also kind of like, if you have a vehicle that long, it means something to you, it really does. Is the person selling it, I want it to go away, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it ever again. It's kind of like watching your friend take your old girlfriend on a date. When you, when you watch that. So I think it's better for both of you that you walk away from this deal. I wouldn't want to buy one that old. Again, more because of the vehicle's maintenance than the engine's maintenance. Let's take another one. I've got a question now for the Bee Whisperer on setting up beehives in a semi-tropical central Florida climate. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Feeling a lot better. <laughs> I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. My question is, Michael, I would like to start a new beehive. I live in central Florida. What style of hive do you suggest for a beginner? How would you set up for a hot, humid state that I live in? Also, do you know any good beekeepers in central Florida that I could reach out for a little mentorship? Well, in central Florida, here at zones oh, 8B to 9B, the temps are very humid and hot. Now, you'll need a good hive stand. You'll need something that is uh, going to get it off the ground, get it away from the ants, other predators, and you're going to want some sort of covering that's over top of it for what we call the afternoon shift, anywhere from 1 until the end of the day. 
You always want the sun to beat on the hive in the morning at the front door so the bees will be able to come out. But like Texas, Arizona, places along that area, even further south as you get into Argentina and places across like that, you'll need some sort of covering over the top of the hive to keep the sun from beating on it because uh, it'll be uh, extremely hot and your bees will cook and they'll be outside the beehive all night trying to keep cool. So you already want them to get shade during the hottest part of the days, which is around 1 to 3 in the afternoon. So if you just keep it covered at those times, that'd be great. And I'm talking like a canopy. Uh, you can put a tarp over top of it. And I'm not talking laying on top of it. You want like a two-foot space. So it's mostly like an awning that the beehives would sit under. And make sure they have a good five-foot space in front of them for orientation and then maybe something to block it so they don't so they go right up into the air and not get into protestrian walkways. So I want you to think about that one. That's that's pretty typical when it comes to setting up a beehive, but in those warmer things you want some sort of afternoon coverage. Now, there's a few things to remember that when you're doing this, you know, you're gonna want more than one beehive. So try to get a system set up that is uh available and easy for to use. Don't try to get seven or eight different types of hives. Uh, just try to get the one system and go with it. So really look on what the system is that you're you're going. And I would get three beehives just so you can start out. That way if one dies, at least you, you, you have something that you can split for your investment. Now, what are you going to do, you know, when you're when you're doing these beehives? What, what was your what was your goal? You're asking like, what are the best ones for a beginning beekeeper? Well, what do you what are you looking to do? Why are you getting into beekeeping? Um, if you're looking for wax production, I would look at a top bar beekeeping system. And in your location, I would look at a CNC top bar hive. Uh, Justin uh, Bethel from Abundant Gardens makes one. You can find him on Facebook or at Justin at DDD dash display dot com that's three d's dash displays d i s p l a y s dot com tell him michael jordan sent, sent you that you're looking for a cnc top bar hive and it's because they're cool uh i mean not cool looking i mean that they're they're easy ventilation they don't trap a lot of heat it's good for ventilation i think he sells his uh, for 275 dollars plus shipping I know Perma Ethos makes a CNC top bar beehive. You can probably get a hold of the Perma Ethos people. So one's on the California side, one's on the Virginia side, West Virginia. I think if you contact them and see which one's price is better and uh, what's going on, like I said, I've got mine from Justin Bethel because he uses uh, wood from Russia that it's put together extremely heavy duty. So I like his. Uh, if you're going to look at another type of top bar, look at BackyardHive.com, BackyardHive.com, and check out the Cathedral Hive made by Corwin. Now, I've worked with Corwin. We've really got really in-depth. He's out of Colorado, and he makes this Cathedral Hive that's kind of like my type of beekeeping. It's Turkish beekeeping, uh, which is one of my favorite styles of beekeeping. He's almost got it, uh, but uh, his... His uh, cathedral hive is based on that principle of a round octagon-shaped top bar beekeeping. 
Like I said, it's one of my favorite. But I'm going to let you know, those beehives sell around 900 bucks. They're handcrafted. Uh, and they're, they're super great. I uh, like the design of them very well. But, you know, for three of, three of them, you're going to be paying a pretty penny plus shipping. But I think they're a great system. I think you can even buy his plans for like 250 bucks, and you can build your own. So that's a Cathedral Hive by BackyardHive.com, and the gentleman's name's Corwin. Now, if you're looking for honey production, you have to look at Langstroth Hives. They're the most components. They can do everything from Ross rounds to pollen catching. They're very easy to use, to locate them, to find information on them. And after talking to members of a club or so, someone uh, at a bee supply store locally, they might be even making that style of beehive there uh, that you can probably buy directly from them locally, that they're probably making them. And if they're making them and you're buying their beehive, you probably even just found a mentor. So Langstroth Beekeeping for honey production, Top Bar for wax production, and that's in your area. Now, if you're just looking for garden pollination or just get into the basics of beekeeping, I would look at an Eco Bee Box by Albert uh, Kubak. Now, Albert is a good friend of mine from Utah. He has made a hive that is awesome for beginners. It's small. It's great for expanding. It uses micro technology and natural comb building. So it is a really cool little system. It's like a mini micro Langstroth hive that you can stack and build. Uh, it does uh, top bar beekeeping, uh, natural comb build. You, you're easy to micro-size your bees down from 5.7 to the 4.9 millimeter bees. Easier, easier to make queen rearing. It's easier for growth. It's a super good uh, beehive. If you look up ECO... B-E-E-Box.net. That's EcoBeeBox.net. E-C-O-B-E-E-Box.net. Write him a note. Tell him Michael Jordan sent you. He'll work out something with you to get you started. He's a great guy. He travels all over teaching education and beekeeping like I do. I think he's. I think his bee is a bee box is a good box to start out with. So there's. A couple different from Top Bar, Langstroth, to EcoBox. They're all good for beginners as long as you get the systems that you want and why you're getting them and stick with them. You really have to sit down and think, why am I getting into beekeeping? And then look at the system that works best for your outcome. I have changed up so many times trying to learn everything that one time I forgot why I got into beekeeping in the first place, and it was to make mead. I wanted to find out what makes the best honey, to make the best mead. Now that I know that honey is one small component in beekeeping, I think that if I was not so much into mead making, I would be making colonies for sale and breeding my own type of queens. I will tell you that I think this is one of the best bee businesses that you can get into. If you have 25 hives that you can make 50 package of nooks from a year and probably 100 queens, you can make an extra $15,000 a year easy. Uh, man, that's that's having very little for honey and mead and other things. I mean, if you're mostly just making queens and making these packaged nicks, you're going to do great. 
Many people are looking for bees to start out or replace hives that they've lost. And if you have hardy local bees, you're the bee's knees. Uh, that an $8,000 investment uh, in, in a year could probably turn you around $8,000. So in two years to three years, this $8,000 investment could make you possibly $15,000 every year. And this is a great little second income job for having like 25 beehives. But if you're not looking for honey production, pollination, wax production or anything, and you're just splitting these beehives to make more bees and colonies to sell, I mean, the effort's a lot less than buying honey spinning equipment, making sure there's pollen and feed for your bees when you're just making bees breed, breeding a good colony and selection of bees. $15,000, man, is a good is a good little second income at home. You can look up Increased Essentials. Uh, and pick up a book on that, and it shows you nook rearing and splitting. So uh, if, if you're getting into this, like really figure out what you want before you get a beehive. And then uh, a great place to get started all this is I'd go hang out at a beekeeping supply store, talk to the owner, see what classes they have, what groups that meet there, see if other beekeepers are coming in and talk to them, You know, see if anybody belongs to the Orange Blossom Beekeepers Association or the Florida State Beekeepers Association. Hell, I would even look at the Florida Backyard Beekeepers Association on Facebook. I'm sure that if you may find a group near you, there might be others looking to even join if you start one. So, you know, you can always look for new classes coming out uh, at, at those locations and, and pick up a mentor or visit a couple classes, and I think that will be good for you. Remember, you can always uh, log on to Permaethos. Uh, we have some more classes coming out of in it for beekeeping. Uh, Josiah should be getting more out after he worked with me during the honey flow season. So he has some coming out, I'm sure. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout-out to the Ohio Get It Shit Done crew. Uh, long live the lumber squatches. Uh, those guys are funny, and I enjoy them. And I would really uh, like to give uh, Jack a little heads-up that if he ever has Greg Burns come out to a November event, and do his hog butchering class at Nine Mile Farm. I think he'd have an awesome turnout. It was a very educational class on charcuterie and salting pork and cutting bacon and making your pork chops. Great class, and I think those guys are doing a great job. I just wanted to give them a quick shout-out. Hey, as always, I'm Michael Jordan telling you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry because we all had to start someplace to get that big industry going. Hey, and help your fellow man. One of the big things, because nowadays, everybody's going to need some help, and you're going to need some help, too. Yeah, I, there's a good friend of the show, and I'll be an instructor at the coming event named Chris Prater. And uh, Chris, long time ago, I remember him saying this, and Michael's reiterating it here, that if you're in a production mentality, you want to produce something, Uh, and, and do it for a profit as a beekeeper, you can make honey or you can make bees. And doing one or the other is a lot smarter than trying to do both from a financial standpoint, from a logistics standpoint. And you just kind of heard that reiterated there. And that's what Chris does. Chris does exactly kind of what Michael's alluding to. Uh, Chris sells all his nukes on one weekend, and he's done with the financial side for the year. 
He gets them all up and ready to go. He puts out his, his marketing and says they'll be available on this day. He takes reservations on it. People show up cash in hand. Boom, here's your beast. Goodbye. And he's done for the year. And it's just a, an extra annual cash flow. And if, if you want to do that, it's, it's a, a reasonable thing to do, definitely. Next question I have is for Doc Bones on dealing with potential infections like sepsis from crush injuries. And it's an important one to think about. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, a topic you might want to know a little bit about. I can answer questions about it. Issues Relating to Survival Medicine. And this week's question for the Expert Council comes from Justice, who writes, Hey, Doc, what concerns do you have over crush injuries, or any other injuries for that matter, leading to sepsis-type infections, and what can we do? Background, I was hit by a car by as a young driver, accelerated and swerved over pedestrians, my gosh, vehicular terrorism here, while I was walking into a store. My foot was crushed from being run over, along with being dragged up behind a tire and wheel well, my gosh, which tore my boot and buckled my foot upward. Additionally, the knee that I had the torn meniscus cut out on, which you and Jack discussed in episode 1815, was pulled and rotated, causing a sprain and strain. Thankfully, no broken bones, but a lot of torn and damaged tissue. I was monitored for compartment syndrome, told to rest, ice, compress, elevate, watch the swelling, which was going down, but on day five, my foot swelled back up, and the area in question became hot to the touch, began discharging some clear yellow fluid with a brown tinge through a newly formed blister. Night of day six, the pain became so intense, I took a trip to the emergency room. They threw me on a regimen of antibiotics, painkillers, and monitoring as they felt it was going septic from infection. Now they're looking at cutting away part of the foot if it does not improve. Low fever, dragging, and nauseous from being stuck in a chair and not active. This whole thing is throbbing like all hell. What's going on and what can we share so other ants know what to do and actions to take? Respectfully, justice. Well, Justice, I'm so sorry you're going through all this. I hope you improve soon and have a full recovery. From your story, it seems to me that your accumulation of blood and damaged tissue is what happened, got infected, and is causing some of the problems. This probably accounts for that brown tinge, the yellow fluid. With a crush injury, deep tissues may be so damaged that they necrose or die from lack of infection, and dead tissue can certainly become infected. The swelling and heat are classic signs of cellulitis, which is an infection in soft tissues. This is not surprising given the circumstances of your injury. Most injuries in survival are dirty, just like yours. Thoroughly cleaning, vigorously flushing it with an irrigation syringe full of antiseptic solution, and vigilance, that's what's needed to deal with wounds like this in off-grid settings. Having a supply of antibiotics, fish or otherwise, will be an additional tool in the woodshed for the survival medic to treat these problems. You can find all this information and much more in our Survival Medicine Handbook. Some of these wounds will be hard to treat, especially if the circulation or nervous system has been compromised. Indeed, even in normal times, dead tissue has to be removed. Once an infection has reached a point where it encompasses the entire body, a condition known as sepsis, oral medications may no longer have enough strength to treat 
the problem. Let's hope that your foot injury improves enough to convince your doctors to avoid any drastic action. Drastic action, however, may be needed in some cases to save a life. And these are just some of the hard realities the medic will face in a true disaster situation. I hope you get better soon, and I hope that they don't have to do anything serious to deal with your problem. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget that all members of the MSB get a discount on anything in Nurse Amy's Doom and Bloom Medical Kit and Supply Store. That's at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Man, I remember the email about the torn knee and then to be hit by a car. Jeez, you're, you're, buddy, you're having some rough luck lately. I, I wish you well. I hope you feel better. Great answer from Doc Bones. Um, but, uh, man, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that, that 2017 proves to be a better year for you than, than the recent, uh, past. Uh, next question I have is, uh, actually it's a whole bunch of questions about the same subject and it was done well enough and I thought it would make a good little segment here at the end, kind of a mini show on ducks. Um, it says, hi Jack, I'm a big fan of the show and the duck chronicles. I have a small flock of ducks and will be selling eggs at a local farmer's market this spring. I also have a few part-time restaurant customers. The eggs are not on the menu, but they use them for specials. Also considering a small meat run for the holidays. My questions are, what do you, where do you get your cartons? My average egg is 2.9 ounces, far too large for even jungable cartons. The only source I've found is eggcars.com, and the cartons cost me almost as much as the eggs themselves. Well, I don't know that that's the case because you can get even there, which I think is overpriced when you're buying in quantity about 45 cents a carton. And if you're paying 45 cents a carton and then paying shipping, you might as well go down to Tractor Supply and buy them for 49 cents a piece uh, and buy them as needed. As far as the size, I recommend you go with what you're trying to go with now, which is extra large egg cartons. No, uh, with ducks laying larger eggs, they will not close well. So what? They still protect the eggs and they're still fine. The way we handle this is we try to make sure when you when you when you process your duck eggs, you're gonna find some are really big, some are gigantimo, those are your double yolks, and some are just really big, and some are big and some are medium big. And what you want to do is you want to make sure you put all your medium big and just big in the uh, in in the back row, and any of the really big guys you kind of jungle up so everybody gets a decent mix and some of the big eggs they all go in the front row. That'll make the carton shut a lot easier right there because you know that when that carton first comes down it's tough. We generally don't do anything with the cartons that don't completely close. We close them if they will, and if they don't, they don't. We put them on the bottom of the stack. We label all our cartons with the date uh, of, uh, of packaging, which is what we are required to do. And uh, you put them on the bottom and set another carton on top of them when they're in the refrigerator until they go to a customer. This will help them stay closed a little bit better. And all we tell customers when we hand them a carton that won't close is, gee, look how big those eggs are, and the carton won't quite close on it. If you really want to, and we did this for a while and realized our customers just didn't give a damn that much, buy yourself a whole big cheap bag of rubber bands. And the ones you want are the ones that are kind of wide, uh, flat rubber bands that are about as big as you could slip around your wrist. You take one of those, and that way you don't have to double it up or anything. And since it's kind of the wider, flatter variety, it doesn't cut into the carton. And put it right in the center of the carton where that kind of center groove is in the carton where you would cut it a half if you wanted to sell half dozen packages. Set it there. It'll keep the lid shut even though it's up. And again, the customer's actually impressed that the eggs they're getting from you are so large that the extra large jumbo carton that they're in 
won't close around them. It's for where we get our, our cartons. We have no loyalty to anybody but the company that continues to win our business time and time again when every time we place an order, we kind of shop around is a company called Zelwyn Farms. Uh, we pay, I think, about 32 cent, 32.5 cents a carton, and we get free shipping. We buy the generic, completely unmarked cartons because there's no need for any marking to be on there. We're selling duck eggs, and anything that's marked with anything is marked with chicken-type stuff on it. We just don't need that because we don't want any confusion. Since they're blank, it's really easy to write on them. We take we have business cards printed by, the, like, we buy, like, 2,000 business cards a shot, uh, and we get those from Vistaprint. And Dorothy has a little glue gun, and every once in a while she sits down and glues a card on a cup, you know, 50 packages, and then we're good for a while. Eggs go in there, and like I said, if they're too big, rubber band goes around them, free shipping, 32.5 cents. You have to build that into your pricing model. That's why we don't sell duck eggs for five bucks. We sell them for eight bucks. And, uh, if you can't make a profit because of the 32 cent carton, uh, then you're doing something wrong in your management. Okay, I just, I'll put it that way. I can't tell you what, but you're doing something wrong. You're overfeeding them. You're, you're not moving enough product. You're not getting enough production out of them. Something's wrong if you're not profitable at $8 a dozen. And if you, if you need to be $8.50, then go to $8.50 and sell the people that are willing to pay for what you're providing. But you should be making at $8 somewhere between two and three bucks a dozen in profit after materials, not necessarily after labor. Okay, so hopefully that answers all that. It says, can you recommend an automatic solution for washing eggs? At my current level of production, it isn't a problem to hand wash them, but I can foresee becoming a problem as my flock expands. I've tried a five-gallon bucket bubbling thing, and it didn't work well at all. I still have to wipe most of the eggs off, and several were cracked. I agree. I have also tried using the, the, the bubbler thing, and it might work well for chicken eggs that don't, frankly, need to be washed very much anyway. The way we wash our eggs is as follows. We go out, we collect them. We use a standard egg collection basket. When we're in high production, we're using two to three of them to bring them all in. We set them on the countertop. We sort through them. Actually, Dorothy does most of this, or our farmhand. And uh, we, we sort through them. And if they look clean, we don't wash them. We stick them straight into a carton. If they look dirty, they get washed. They get washed on a running hot water. Uh, if they're just a little dirty, generally just with hands. If they're significantly dirty, we use the, the hard nylon bristle style scrub brushes like that you use to brush, uh, you know, uh, dishes. Or what actually works really good are the brushes like that that are designed for cleaning fingernails. Uh, we keep several of those. That way we use one. It's been used. It doesn't get used again. It goes in the dishwasher. When the dishwasher runs, it comes back out. It goes in a drawer. That drawer is where we keep them all. That way we always have some available that are clean and they don't ever wear out and they've been through the sanitation uh, process in the dishwasher so we know they're safe to use yet again. Um, they go on to some towels. Those towels, are, are you know, when they're wet, they sit on those towels. That uh, dries them off a bit. They go into packaging. Packaging goes in the refrigerator. That towel that they sat on and the towel that sits under the basket on the other part of the counter, those go in the wash and they go through the washing machine. When they're done, they go back into a drawer and they get pulled out and used again over and over. We hand wash. It doesn't really take that long and we go as high in our production in the summer as nine dozen eggs a day. And, and if you're probably at your level not going to go any higher than that, we probably won't ever either. There's a limit to how many eggs you can sell if you want to sell at a price point that's a premium, like an $8, $9 a dozen price point, direct to customer and direct to farm-to-table restaurants. I would highly encourage you to talk to the restaurants that you're selling to now and try to sell as much product as you can to restaurants because it's completely painless. 
They always pay. They always pay on time. They're happy, and they take a lot of product at once. The problem you may have, depending on the size of your flock, is to do that with them, you have to be able to consistently deliver you know, something in the order of six to eight dozen a week. So if you're producing 15 dozen a week, it's probable that one or two restaurant customers could take all your product. The problem is if you lose one. So I don't recommend you have one. You have at least two, and you do some retail business. Or if you're smaller than that, you have one restaurant, and you do half of your retail business direct to consumer. That way, you can always kind of have some some buffer and, and, and move product out the door. It says, what do you look for in a processor for meat birds? If I pre-sell the birds, I don't have to worry about the USDA, but it's important to me that the birds are dispatched humanely. Any advice in vetting? If you're going to be doing this type of, uh, of volume, then any processor you're going to use is going to be a relatively small-time processor. Take some birds down there and get take some coals and let them process them for you. However, they're probably not going to have you back there watching it going on. This is the reality. The way you dispatch a duck in this situation or just about any poultry is they're hung up and they, they slit their throats or cut their heads off. The, 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 the animals are probably going to be more upset by being put in crate and taken there than the actual process because once that happens, you're dead. And unless you, you know, you can talk to a person that, that runs a processing facility and you get a feel for that person. And if that person's not an asshole, then anything they do as far as processing, they don't want to torment the animal. They want to get it done and be done with it. And they're probably providing pretty good oversight over their employees. So you, what you want to talk to is probably not even the person that does the processing unless it's that small of an operation, but the person that is the overseer that oversees the people that do it. And, and those folks are doing a job. They're not out there to make animals miserable. They're not processing 50,000. You're not going to find a facility that processes thousands of birds a day to do your processing. Your, your hardest fight is not going to be finding a processor that, that's a, that's a good ethical processor. It's going to be finding a processor that'll take your birds. And I really strongly encourage you to fully research the feasibility of that before you think, I'll run 200 meat birds. Feasibility of selling them and feasibility of them getting processed. As far as pre-selling, the only way you can pre-sell and not have it be your problem is to do what I did with the turkeys. Your customer needs to come, take the birds, and deliver them to the processor as the customer. You can't pre-sell the birds, take them there, deliver them to the processor, and have your customer pick them up. Or if you do so and pick them up and then give them to your customer, if you've already taken the money, Technically, you're legal, but I wouldn't want to really advertise that's what you're doing. The clean way is your customer takes the product. If you're physically able and conveniently able to take birds to the processor, it would also be completely a clean thing for you to take the birds to the parking lot, have a day when all your customers are going to meet you there, and let them each sign for their own processing. It's probably complicated, though. And the other thing you're going to have a hard time with when you're looking for a processor is finding a processor that does ducks. Generally speaking, if you're not needing USDA and you're going to pre-sell or whatever, just have them self-processed, lots of places in most areas can be found to process chickens. When you start looking for turkeys, ducks, and geese, it becomes more difficult. In all of our work here, we found one processor, if you're local to my area, they're in Weatherford and they're called Hamilton Meats. They'll do any poultry. They'll do any poultry, but they're not a state licensed facility or a federal licensed facility for resell processing of poultry. It's a very complicated thing to do that. So, again, when we do, we do high-profit birds, and that's it, and we pre-sell them, and the customers come get them and take them away, and that's how we do that. 
with ducks. I don't know that they're going to be the most profitable thing for a small-scale producer as a meat bird. What I would suggest that you do is figure out how many you'd like for yourself, verify first that you can find a processor, pick up maybe a dozen, raise them to 11 weeks, that should be your target for, for production, run your numbers, take them down there and pay the processing fee, build everything into it, bring them home and eat them. Maybe if you have a customer or two that you think would be a good prospect, give them one. See if there's an interest. After you've run the numbers and gauged the interest and seen what you can sell at, then decide whether or not this is really worth it to you. Because I'm going to play a scenario here. Let's say that you could make $10 a bird, which is probably possible and probably you can't do much better. You probably can't do much better. If you run 50 birds at $10 a bird, you just made $500. You're going to do a lot of work for that $500. If you brought your flock strength up to 60 or 70, that instead of buying a, a meat bird and you run egg producers and you build up your egg production, that bird is worth to you over three seasons $350 to $400. And you're going to do less work because you're not going to have to pick the bird up, take it down there, get it processed, sell a meat product. Personally, what I do with my birds when it comes time to cull them, I have the processor process them, and I eat them like regular ducks, or I self-process. And when I self-process, I open up the, the, the breast skin, I pull it back, I cut two breast cutlets off, I yank the thigh out of the socket, pull it up and strip it down to the end, and I cut the legs off. And then I either package the legs separately and do them in a confit, uh, or I, do, I debone them and I take them with the, the breast. I get them like when they're halfway frozen. I put them through a grinder. I mix them with 50% pork. I drop a little Armagnac in there and some seasoning, and I make duck sausage. All the hearts and livers go into that grind too. And that's worth more to me as a coal product than it would ever be worth for me to sell ducks for meat for profit. I just don't do it. I'm not in that business, and I'm not a big fan of it. But if you want to give it a try, run a test scenario for yourself first. And again, as far as finding a processor, I don't think you're going to have a problem finding a processor that will treat the animals with respect. Anybody that doesn't do that doesn't stay in business long when they're, at, they're operating at small levels like that because people see what's going on. Your problem is going to be finding someone willing to process ducks for you. All right, guys, so I uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, the Expert Council shows are always really varied and, and, and different and have lots of different topics. Remember, you can send in a question for the Expert Council. You can meet all of the members of the Expert Council. All the Expert Council shows have a list of all the folks. If you uh, click on Meet the Expert uh, Council in that list, you can go to a page or you can go to um, the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, if you click on About at the top, actually don't click, you just... Uh, hover on it, there's a pull down to meet the expert council. You can go there and see exactly who's on the council and, and figure out what you might want to ask them. Send me an email, send it to jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, put TSPC expert in the subject line and give me your question and which council member you have it for, and I will forward it on to them and get you guys uh, on the air. Generally speaking, uh, most questions that come in for the council end up on the show eventually. Not all of them, but a really high percentage because they get divided out against you know 13 really great individuals. With that, I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can support us by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. It's the simple, painless way 
to support the Survival Podcast because you don't really have to do anything you weren't going to do anyway except just go to a different domain when you buy on Amazon. Instead of going to Amazon.com, you go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You click a link, then you're on Amazon. It looks the same as it always does. You do your shopping on Amazon, we get credit for the, the orders. It's that simple. It is such an easy way to support us at thesurvivalpodcast.com via TSPAS. And if you're just on the site, you'll see a little tab at the top that says TSPAS, and you'll also see reviews in the blog uh, blog feed. And uh, every day I review an item from Amazon that you can take a look at and decide if it makes sense for you. Today I have Lodge Carbon Steel Season Skillets as my item of the day. I learned about these from Chef Keith Snow in one of the expert counsel questions, ironically. When somebody was asking kind of like, what is the best, what is the best uh, way to sear, like sear steaks and sear seafood and sear stuff like that and get a really great crust on it. And I've always been a huge fan of cast iron for that. And it works. It works really good. These things work better. They work better because they heat evenly and quickly. So they get up to that temperature really, really fast. What's great about cast iron, it holds heat. Carbon steel takes the heat really, really quick. And with a thinner, lighter pan, it dissipates it more effectively, and it, it does a better job, in my opinion, of searing. And I have a confession, as much as I've been in love with cast iron for so long. Since I learned about Greystone cookware for my regular nonstick cooking, And uh, these things from Chef Keith Snow, my cast iron is feeling awful lonely. I, I don't actually spend a lot of time uh, using my cast iron anymore. I do once in a while, and I certainly do with things like my Dutch oven. When I'm doing certain things in an oven, I think it's a really great tool, the cast iron Dutch ovens, either enameled or, or bare cast iron. Uh, but when it comes to the cast iron frying pan that, li pan that lived on my, on my uh, stovetop, uh, I haven't seen it in a while. It's because of these two different implements. Uh, they come in from eight to, uh, to, to 18 inch, or eight to, eight to 15 inches, uh, in size. And the 15 inch one's a really big one. It's got two handles on it. Um, I kind of like one of those. Costs about twice as much as the rest of them do. And, uh, the reason I really don't have one yet isn't the price. It's that I have so much kitchen stuff. Like, I have a rule now if I buy a new pan, something has to go. Like, if I buy something new, something old has to go. Because I have something to do everything. So I'm like, well, what would I get rid of? Uh, and I only have so much room in my kitchen for stuff. So what I have is an 18 or an 8 and a 12 inch one, and they do pretty much everything I need. They come pre-seasoned, and if you follow the care instructions, they stay nonstick. They work really good. And boy, you, I, I just have never been able to get a sear uh, on a piece of meat like I've been able to do with these, uh, cast on, or these, uh, these carbon steel skillets. Uh, and if you go to a, like a professional restaurant where they do a lot of meat searing and stuff like that and go in the back, you see, you just see stacks of these things. They're just constantly being used and cleaned and, and reseasoned and reused, uh, because they work so well. The professional chefs use these carbon steel, uh, type pans for a ton of what they do. If you give them a try, you'll see why. You can learn more again at tspaz.com. Just look at the item of the day link for that. Or if you want to go do your shopping as regular, click the link off to there. So that brings us to our song of the day, and as I mentioned, it was actually uh, mentioned in the history segment today, and it's called In the Mood by the Glenn Miller Band. And this song is one you're probably like, I've never heard of this, I don't know. You, the, second, the second the music starts, you go, oh, that. And it'll just make you think of old cars and black and white film and, and, and another time. You'll, you'll know that you'll, even if you don't, never knew the name of the song, you will immediately recognize it in the first ten notes of the song, probably the first two, but definitely the first ten. When you hear the horns come up and all, you'll just, wow. 
And I want you to contrast it, because the reason I've started this, you know, Song of the Day being the number one song of the year of the episode is to give you a flavor for the changing of culture in America. And yesterday's song was dark and deep and, frankly, awful. And it's almost like the country said, well, we've looked at that ugliness and we need a break and we need something happy sounding. And no one yet really gets in the United States, I think, that the world is not only at war, but we're fixing to be part of it. No one really understands what's going to happen in 1941 and then 42 and 43 and 44, the battles and the countless lives lost and the sacrifices made and what's going to happen to America. No one gets that yet. They're still in the middle of the Depression. But music like this makes you feel better. And that's something about music that's universal. Music has the power to convey emotion. It can make you sad. It can make you think deeply. It can make you reminisce. Or it can make you feel good. And if there's ever been a feel-good piece of music, you're about to hear it right now. Again, in the mood. I guess that's the good mood with the Glenn Miller Band. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.